welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague, Michael Bench-Clearing Bauman. Hi, Michael. Yeah. If I'm known for anything, it's for fighting people. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a beanball. We had a bench-clearing brawl this weekend, so I figured it'd be appropriate. Hey, quick update on the juiced ball. We are at 33.5 plate appearances per home run. Last April, we were at 36.2, so even more juiced thus far this season. Yeah, I see no reason to alter our editorial <laughs> stance that the balls are juiced until, honestly, I don't know what proof they could offer me that it isn't. Yeah, swing changers and launch angles aside, I'm sure that's playing a part too, but mm-hmm. yes, anyway, that's the update. You have a, a little rant? I had. Well, first, I have another installment in our favorite game, College uh, Baseball yes. Player or. So okay. this week, it's College Baseball Player or alter ego for a musician. <laughs> okay. All right. So some of the these are the names of either alter egos in bands or fit completely fictional cartoon characters who are in bands. Okay. All right. First up, Toki Wartooth. That's got to be banned. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I made a Metalocalypse joke on the podcast like two weeks ago. So he's the, <laughs> yeah. the guitarist for Death Clock. Okay. Second up, Murdoch Nichols. Baseball? No, he is the bassist Ooh. for Gorillas. Oh, okay. Jake Shears. That's got to be baseball. Nope. He's the lead no. singer for the Scissor Sisters. Oh, all right. Wesley Drain. Wesley Drain. See, what if you're just going all bands to confuse me now? I know. I you started know. You started reading into the, the order of the names. <laughs> this is always about psychology as mm-hmm. much as it is about the baseball players, but I'm going to say baseball player. Yeah, he's an infielder for Grambling. Okay. And last up, Sean Jelly. Band? Nope. The right-handed pitcher <sighs> for uh, Kentucky and according to D1Baseball.com, leading the SEC in wins right now. He's a fun yeah. pitcher. He's 6'11 and about 110 pounds. <laughs> so do they call him Jelly yes. Bean or something? No, yeah, they call okay. they just call him Jelly. And <laughs> it's right. uh, it's spelled H J E L L E. So there's ah, okay. not only is it Jelly, there's a silent H. <laughs> All right. All right. So on to these enormous pitching staffs. Um, yeah. I guess we're just not using bench players anymore. <laughs> no, unless they're Michael Lorenzen and can hit as well as be in the bullpen. Well, you're no. going to need to, because apparently like major league GMs and managers would apparently go into the shop at the beginning of a game of Oregon Trail and buy like <laughs> one ox and 35 middle relievers because yeah. I mean the A's for a couple of days this week were running a 13 man pitching staff with three catchers yeah. and when Carlos Correa got dinged on the the hand last weekend Mike Fires had to run into the the dugout to get his spikes on to pinch run cuz the Astros were at a at a bench guys and like the Astros they pinch hit they do a lot of defensive substitutions cuz AJ Hinch likes to play matchups and like you can't do that if you got mm-hmm. a three-man bench meanwhile they shorten the, the minimum dl stay to 10 games so you're not right. carrying dead weight like the the most annoying injury is like the 11 days on the shelf injury to uh-huh. a really good player so now you can put a pitcher on the on the dl and have him only miss one start or you can have a player on the dl and only have him miss like eight games and the mets meanwhile like hadn't figured this out yeah jared seiler from baseball prospectus i think he was going to have a stroke at some point if they hadn't <laughs> if they hadn't finally put lucas dudo on the dl they ran like a one-man bench bench and they were running Juan Lagares out there as a backup shortstop like you could put the guy on the DL like 10 days isn't that much to miss for anybody and you also don't need more than 11 pitchers 
Like mm-hmm. you don't need to take so many pitchers that you can play a 15 inning game where your starter gets knocked out in the second inning three days in a row. Like if you're smart about this, you you really only need 11 pitchers. I wonder if this is something like the shift where it's annoying to me personally, but it's optimal strategy or if this mm-hmm. is just like weirdness. <laughs> I'm willing to buy the idea that even the shift has been over applied in some cases. And maybe that's the case with this too. I mean, I think clearly relievers are very effective and they've gotten more effective over the years because they're used for shorter stints and in matchups and all of that. So there's a point to it. And it's possible also that some bench players who used to be on benches just didn't really deserve a spot like the dedicated pinch hitter has essentially gone away at this point. Mm -hmm. There's just not space for that person on the roster anymore. I don't know how often that person was actually good at hitting, like especially when you consider the fact that there's a penalty and pinch hitters are typically worse than they would be if they were starting. So there were probably a lot of just bad bench players who were getting carried on teams for no real reason in the past. But there are a lot of times today when a weak hitting catcher or shortstop or utility guy is allowed to bat in a crucial situation because there just isn't anyone to hit for him because the bench is so small. Well, let let me answer your question as to how good your dedicated pinch hitter is, probably better than your eighth relief pitcher. Probably, yes. I don't know if there's the advantage to saving other players from fatigue that there would be with the eighth relief pitcher. I don't know how often that is a problem either, but if you are saving other pitchers innings or you're making better pitchers available because you can have the eighth guy go in a game that you're not going to win anyway, maybe that's more valuable than just giving someone one plate appearance off or something because you're pinch hitting with a guy. But I agree with you. I mean, it does seem to have gotten out of hand and at least on certain teams. Now, maybe if you have a very weak starting rotation and those guys aren't going deep into games. And of course, it's probably a good idea for starters not to go that deep into games unless they're very good. So I can see certain cases where it might be smart, but in other cases, it might just be bullpen expansion run rampant. And we hope that the Devenskis and Lorenzens of the world will eventually help that pendulum swing back. But that's part of the problem that relievers aren't conditioned for long outings. Right. And that's, I think, part of the problem is, you you know, maybe we are entering a, a, a state of the game where starters go five or six instead of mm-hmm. six or seven, like we were even like a year or two ago. But yeah. the answer to that is probably like it's not that much worse for you as a relief pitcher to warm up and go in and throw two innings at, mm-hmm. and 35 total pitches as opposed to warm up, go in, throw one one inning of like 16 or 17. Uh, uh-huh. The problem is you need at some point you're going to play close games and you're going to need guys who can eat up multiple innings. And, you know, there's only one Andrew Miller. There really aren't that many Chris Stabenskis. I, I was looking back at because you you and I both wrote about the multi-inning reliever yeah. thing in the, the span of a couple of days earlier this month and we both listed a bunch of guys who would be candidates for that role and like a lot of those guys just aren't very good anymore like Frankie Montas got roughed up Dan Altavilla is in the minors right now so Mm -hmm. it's I wonder if we're heading towards something like you've got in soccer where you've got a 25 man roster and you dress 18 and you play 11 with three subs and I Uh wonder if we're we're headed toward the 40 man roster being almost like a taxi squad like that 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, if you throw two effective innings, you're not even facing the same hitters twice. So you can't even say that it's like limited exposure of the reliever. I agree that this is an area where it's possible that the innovation has gone too far and that maybe at some point someone will realize that and turn back the clock a bit and derive some advantage from that. Yeah. And maybe maybe this will shake out over the course of the season as bullpen mm-hmm. rolls settle down and we figure out who's hurt and who's not. Maybe. But the long-term trend is definitely toward That's larger true. and larger pitching Well, eventually stats. it's got to, like it's reaching a point now where it's got to stop. Like yeah. just by virtue right. of you only being able to dress 25 guys. Right. Well, unless we add a 26 man, which could very well happen before this trend changes. I don't know. Soon, like the joke about teacher kids to throw left-handed, like right. literally mm-hmm. every left-handed person in the, every able-bodied man and woman in the U.S. who's left-handed <laughs> will be in a major league bullpen by the year 2100. Well, later in this episode, we are going to talk to a right-handed reliever who is in major league bullpens for many years and for about 2100 years (laughs) yeah latroy hawkins of course the longtime twin and pitcher for many other teams we're going to talk to him about some of the things we've just been talking about bullpen roles and also aging and how you stay effective at advanced ages and in colorado where he pitched a couple times we're also going to talk to him about race and about the declining percentage of players who are African-American and how those players seem to be underrepresented historically at certain positions, including pitcher and catcher. But before we get to LaTroy, we just wanted to do a, a quick actual baseball segment. And in the past on this podcast, it's been called what the panic meter. I don't know if there's a better term for that because panic is unproductive, right? You never want a, a team or a, a player to panic. I wouldn't know. I have nothing to compare. <laughs> I have no experience with an absence of panic to compare it to. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we want to just run through a handful of situations where a team has gotten off to a slow start or has lost a pivotal player and talk about, I don't know, how their probability of making the playoffs has been affected or how much worse their fortunes are now than they were at the start of the season. So anywhere you want to begin? Let's start with the Blue Jays, I guess, just because that's Mm -hmm. easy. Yeah. So they entered the day four and three. 13. We are speaking before Sunday's game, but regardless of the outcome, it won't change the fact that they are off to a miserable start. Yeah. You know, the question in the first couple of weeks of the season is how badly can you can you kneecap your chances of right. winning the division in two or three weeks? And I think the answer is somewhere before starting four and 13. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know where that line is, but I think they're past it. Yeah, so do I. I think especially the fact that they are in the AL East where, as we speak, every other team is over 500, which is and the, including the Orioles, help. who are inexplicably 12 and four. <laughs> yeah, of course they are. Well, the Blue Jays entered the season, I thought, as a wild card team. Although I would have placed a, a fairly low confidence on that because there are a bunch of teams that were kind of in that range. But you figured them for mid 80s or something. And basically, unless you believe in the gambler's fallacy that a team that has been bad is due to be better than you would have thought they'd be. 
that's not the case. So these games in April count as much as any other games. And so maybe they will be the same team from today forward that we expected them to be coming into the season. But they have already dug themselves a hole that in this division and this league, I think, will be very difficult to climb out of. If you want to go by playoff odds, they entered the season with 52.1% chances of making the playoffs, according to Fangraphs. And as we speak, they are now down to 13.5%, which is the lowest of any AL East team. So, you know, they got off to not a great start last year and they ended up coming back. And I'm sure they will play better for most of the season. But at this but point, even if, but <laughs> even if they get back on that, like, right. like 85 win pace, that's yeah. not going to get them back up to 500 by the end of the year. No, it's it seems to be too late. And so they have some difficult decisions to make because this is kind of an older team and there's no obvious reason to think that they would be better next year bringing back this whole group. They've got Josh Donaldson, who's headed for free agency after what, next season? Yeah, after 2018, and, yeah. Yeah. And so you start to wonder, is this a team that breaks things up and is looking to move people at the deadline unless they come charging back somehow. I guess that's complicated by the fact that part of the reason they're not playing well is that a lot of those veterans are not playing well. And so that would be suppressing their trade value too. So they're in a pretty unenviable spot right now. Yeah, I'm surprised that they are where they are, but yeah, it's just it's yeah. too late. Justin Smoke's slugging 558 though. All right. Well, you gotta look on the bright side. So I don't know if there's like some scale or some meter that we are actually going to put them on here, but basically they're in big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is uh not something you can excuse with small sample. All right, who are we gonna go to next? How about the San Francisco dirt bike racers? Mm, yes, okay. Insert Jeff Kent joke here. So Madison Bumgarner hurt himself on a dirt bike. He's out for what six to eight weeks, possibly longer. Yeah, Ken Rosenthal was. I think. I think it was Ken Rosenthal was hinting at a, a longer DL stay. So mm-hmm. yeah. So that yeah that hurts quite a bit. They are also off to a six and twelve start, which would be worrisome, even if not for losing maybe their best pitcher for an extended period. So again, they're in a division with a team. That I think is clearly better and that was expected to be better coming to the year. I also picked them to be a wildcard team. I, yeah, I think I picked them too. Just fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, look, losing Bumgarner for, if we say it's two months, a third of a season. It's that's not uh, that's actually not as big a deal as as you would think it is. Like no, you can, a good right. team can lose anybody for two months, and yeah. I mean it's not great, but the difference between Bumgarner and Ty Black is over two months. I doubt it's more than a win. No, right? It, it can't be much more than that because I mean he's been basically a five win player over the past couple of years, and so you do the math and divide five by three, and it's just not all that huge an impact. So it hurts. And And it hurts especially because they're off to the start that they're off to in a division where, again, every other team is off to a better start. Mm -hmm. And the Rockies are justifying some people's preseason confidence and the Dodgers will be fine. The Diamondbacks seem to have bounced back. And so tough spot for them to be in. Yeah. The six and 12 start isn't fatal. The two month absence of Bumgarner isn't fatal, but the two of them together is rough. And if Bumgarner's mm-hmm. out for longer, they're probably done. Yeah. I mean, a little bit better than the Blue Jays situation, I think, just yeah. because of I the division they're in. Division. And yeah. Yes. Right. And they're not up to quite as terrible a start record wise, but I would 
think that relative to any other team's preseason expectations versus where they are today, I'm not sure that any other team has fallen further than the Giants. Maybe the Mariners have a, a case. Actually, we can check that. So we just did a little math here with the Fangraphs playoff odds and the biggest changes in odds. And this is odds of making the division series. The greatest declines there are the Blue Jays, the Giants, and the Mariners, the three teams that we were just talking about. The Angels and Mets are right after that. If you want to know who has improved their odds the most since opening day, that would be the Nationals, the Astros, the Yankees, the Orioles, and the Indians. So we have pinpointed the proper teams to worry about going by the stats. So yeah, I would say the the Giants haven't hurt themselves quite as much as the Blue Jays, but they are up there with anyone else. Yeah. Did we talk about the Mariners yet? Not really. Okay. I don't think they're in that bad a shape, even having lost, what, three games in a row going into Sunday against the A's who are not very good. I think if James Paxton's legit, then that's a big deal. I think mm-hmm. seven and 12 is not so far behind that. I mean, they're five and a half games out of first place, but I still think that one of those wildcard spots in the American League is, is there for the taking. And they had baseball perspectives had them as either the second or third biggest loser in terms of divisional round odds. And they're still at 18.3%. So mm-hmm. they need to... I'll say this for the 500th time in the past three weeks, but like the problem with starting slow isn't that you get so far behind. It's that you've used up all your wiggle room. And I think Mm there's still at that used up all the wiggle room uh, stage of the season right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we saw this happen to the Astros last season where they got off to Mm -hmm. a slow start and then they played like everyone had expected them to play for most of the season, but it was too late. They were too far behind the eight ball. I think, yeah, the Mariners haven't hurt themselves as much as the two teams we just talked about, but I think losing Smiley hurts a lot and not knowing exactly when he'll be back or how effective he'll be. And yes, Paxton is amazing. And it seems and like... so is Mitch Hanniger, apparently. Yeah, Mitch Hanniger, amazing also. And it seems like Felix is, if not back exactly, he's off to a, a pretty strong start, at least uh, if you go by the fact that he has a 20 strikeout to walk ratio right now. But I forget my preseason picks instantly because I spend about a minute thinking about them because I I don't think I'm any better than anyone else is at picking these things, but I think I had the Mariners as a second wildcard team. I wouldn't if we were starting the season no. again today with everyone where they are now, but agreed, not quite as worrisome as the other two teams we've talked about. Yeah. Worry, not panic. Right. Okay. And then we can move on to the Angels, who are the team that after the Blue Jays, Giants, and Mariners has seen their odds of making the division series fall the most since opening day. And of course, they lost Garrett Richards almost instantly, and he was just transferred to the 60-day DL with continued biceps weakness. And coming into the year, I would have said that Garrett Richards was one of the most pivotal players Mm -hmm. in the majors, probably just because the Angels seemed to be right on the cusp of contention. And and you would have improved right. Yes, I I guess that's true. And and with Richards back as 
an ace as a guy that people were predicting to win the Cy Young Award last year, that might have been enough. And without him or with him in some compromised state, I don't think they really have enough to do it. And they're also off to a losing start, although not a terrible start. I think that loss might be enough to to push them out of it for me. Yeah, I feel I, I'm having trouble evaluating the Angels just because of how bad I feel for Garrett Richards. Mm-hmm. Like he, by all rights, ought to have won a Cy Young Award by now if he had been able to put the stuff together um, over 200 innings. And I just want, you know, if it, if this is how the past two or three years have gone, I don't think he's ever going to put it together at this point. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And I I think, you know, he was an interesting guy too, because he chose to try to rest and rehab and mm-hmm. try PRP and other therapies instead of having Tommy John. And I think people are going to come to the conclusion that that was a mistake, that he should have had the surgery, even though this is a different injury and possibly an unrelated injury. So I don't think it's necessarily fair to make that connection, but he was an interesting test case. It seems like more and more guys are trying these semi-experimental treatments instead of going under the knife right away. And would have been nice if that had worked out well. And the fact that it hasn't might discourage other players from trying it when it might make some sense. But yeah, it hurts the Angels. And I didn't think they were a playoff team coming into the year. So I'm going to have to write them off now as much as you can write off any team when it's still April. And that takes us to our last situation to talk about, the Pirates, who just lost Starling Marte to an 80-game PED suspension. I don't think they were in it anyway. No. Uh, so I don't know how much you can say that losing Marte for 80 games hurts. And I'll I'll reiterate what I said about Bumgarner is, I mean, they've got depth, whether it's Austin Meadows or you know whoever winds up getting the majority of those at-bats. Losing Marte for even half a season isn't a torpedo below the waterline, but I don't mm-hmm. think they were in it to begin with. Yeah, that's the thing with all these teams we're talking about. They were, were all kind of... cases anyway. Yeah, they were all on the bubble where adding a win or two or subtracting a win or two hurts more than it would, say, a team that's out of it or a team that can just kind of coast to the playoffs, like maybe the Cubs or the Indians. So I think given that... Although I, I wonder if just because all of these teams have had so much go wrong, that one of them might not crawl back into the race in July and, you know, we're mm-hmm. going to we're going to get emails about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's always a risk. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about several teams. So even if the odds of each individual, one of them coming back are low, the odds of one of the group coming back and being in contention are and not terrible. And that's your favorite team. We're saying that your favorite <laughs> team is going to be the one that defies the odds. Yes, please tweet at us later and remind us of what we said. We must be kept humble. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I wouldn't have forecasted the Pirates as a playoff team. Marte is probably their best player and an excellent player. He's been like a five win guy for, that I don't know, four years now. Yeah, Marte is the best player on the Pirates right, after McCutcheon or Garrett Cole for so long. Right. But I think it's true. He's just been fantastic over the last several years and losing him right again. It's, you know, maybe two wins or something like that, depending on how productive his replacements are. Meadows, I don't think is ready yet. So they're sort of filling time with other players and Adam Frazier and people like that. But yeah, any slim hope that they had of getting back to what Joe Sheehan calls the Clint Hurdle Invitational, the wild card game, because they've been in it so many times, is now considerably slimmer to the point that I wouldn't hold out much hope. So you wonder whether they will be a team that decides to sell and whether Andrew McCutcheon will be on the move 
move and whether he'll even play well enough to make himself desirable. Yeah, that's a real interesting question. Is like if this season's lost now, what they do long term? But mm-hmm. we shall see. Yeah. All right. So we did one segment without talking to a reliever, which is a, a lot for us, but we're going to correct that now and talk to a reliever. So we will be right back with Latroy Hawkins. So we are joined now by LaTroy Hawkins, who many of you will remember for his 21-year big league career as a pitcher. He is a busy man these days, too. He's working in the front office for the Twins. He's also doing some analysis for Fox Sports North, and he's also doing some work for TuneIn. So he is joining us now. Hi, LaTroy. Hi, guys. How are you guys doing? We're doing well, thanks. So one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was, you know, one of the less uplifting subtexts, I suppose, of the recent celebration of the 70th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's integration of the majors was the declining proportion of the player pool that is represented by African-American players. And of course, this has been a frequent subject of discussion. And there was a study published at Sabre by Mark Armour and Daniel Levitt that tried to classify the demographics of players going all the way back to Jackie's career, and they found that the percentage of African-American players in 2016 had fallen to just under 7%, or if you go by the percentage of war produced, about 8%. And there are a lot of reasons for this. It's a complex subject, and, and maybe we'll get into a few of them. But one of the, I think, underreported aspects of it is the breakdown by position, because for whatever reason, African-American players have historically disproportionately tended to be outfielders and have been very underrepresented at pitcher and catcher. And pitcher especially has become a a much greater percentage of the roster, right? Because of the expansion of bullpens and pitching staffs, there just haven't been all that many African-American pitchers. And so we wanted to get your thoughts on that because you were one. And I wanted to ask whether you had any theories for why it seems like historically African-American players have tended to be concentrated at certain positions and not others. Well, that's a long and, like you said, complex answer I'm going to try to give to your listeners. But uh, as far as being a pitcher and an African-American pitcher, you know, know, there's no glamour in pitching, I don't think. And guys don't, you don't get to hit, well, you know, you get to hit a little bit if you're pitching in the National League, but in the American League, pitchers don't get to hit. So you don't get to hit. And baseball is such a, you know, a slow-moving sport. And I know from experience when I was a kid, the more more you were part of the game, the more you enjoyed it. And as a pitcher, you were only the pitcher. So you don't get to enjoy the game as much as you, you play in a position, you know, trying to, you know, rob guys of hits and going up there actually getting a chance to, you know, get a hit yourself. And I think that plays a huge, huge role in it. And and it also goes to baseball, basketball, and football. Football has you know, 55 guys on a team. It's a, a, a revenue-generating sport and sport in college. Basketball has 12, 15 guys on a team. You know, if you're at a very big school like the KU's, the K- Kentucky, North Carolina, you're at a, a basketball is a, a revenue-generating sport as well. All those schools, baseball is not a revenue revenue sport. So they don't give out full scholarships in college for baseball players. You get a percentage of a scholarship. So with that being said, 
you know, most of your African-American players come from the inner city. Mm-hmm. They tend to gravitate towards basketball and football because those sports are giving out full, full scholarships. The parents don't have to worry about anything. Whereas opposed to if you want to play baseball, you're only getting, you're only getting a quarter of a scholarship, 25%, 33%. If you one of the top players that they're recruiting, you might, I'm guessing, get 60 to 75%. But your parents still going to have to come out of something and out of their pocket. And basketball and, ba- and, and football, that's not the case. So I think that's a, one of the main reasons why we lose so many African-American kids to those other sports because of the whole college situation and the amateur level with baseball has become the sport that costs so much to play with all these travel leagues, travel teams, all the the showcases. The African-American kids, the minority kids can't, you know, can't go to their parents and, and pay three, four, five thousand dollars one summer just so you can play baseball and to travel to all these showcases. So there's a, a number of different reasons why I think that we are in the situation that we're in because of, you know, the lack of African-Americans playing the game and it's dipped down to under, you know, just under 7%. To speak to the, the college baseball angle about that, I'd recommend anybody listening, go read Andrew McCutcheon's column in the Players' Tribune from a couple years ago, where he talks about how he couldn't play college baseball because even with his partial scholarship, he wouldn't have been able to afford it. So it's absolutely unfair for me to ask you what the answer is, because it's a it's a complicated question, but you know, is it more college scholarships? Is it, you know, it seems like baseball does a lot of like major league baseball does a lot of outreach that looks good for PR purposes, but I don't know how effective something like the RBI program is. The RBI program, I've worked with it and I don't, I don't think it's it's, uh, effective at all. I think the best thing that major league baseball has done is put those academies in the cities. What is, I think they're in, uh, I know there's one in LA there's one in Houston I think there's going to be one in Kansas City. So they're, they're putting those type of academies around the country. But, you know, when you look when you look and, and, and sit down and just completely just bring in all the schematics of baseball and where are, you know, the, the majority of you know, Caucasian players, Latin players, and African-American players, Major League Baseball teams are spending a ton of money down in the Dominican Republic in Venezuela. They're down there scouting those guys. And... You know, people oh, they get all get their 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 underwear in a bunch. Oh, he's talking about Latin players. That's not true. This is not what I'm doing. I'm not talking about Latin players. I love all my Latin brothers. I love every team I ever played with. But the fact of the matter is, Major League Baseball is putting all their resources there and not putting them here. Well, they're starting to put them here, but they've been putting all their resources down in the Dominican Republic and in Venezuela. That's why you have so many Latin guys because they're getting these guys at 16 years old, signing them. Some of the, some guys get big signing bonuses, some don't. But with the American African American kid, a kid living in inner city, I don't think they give those guys a, a chance to play professional baseball. If you give those guys a chance, you never know what you'll have. Because myself, coming out of Gary, Indiana, I wasn't a baseball player. The Minnesota Twins, Terry Ryan, Larry Corgan, Mike Ratcliffe. Those guys took a chance on a on an athletic kid who played basketball and ran track in high school and played a little baseball. They took a chance on a kid like me. And I don't think teams take enough chances on kids out of the inner city. Mm-hmm. 
And right around the time that you broke into the big leagues was when actually the percentage of pitchers who are African-American started to decline. And it was never all that high. I think it was uh, about 6% at its peak, but now it's like 2 or 3% and they're 10 times as many Latino pitchers. And this is just something that's always made me curious. Did you face any pressure at any point to play a different position or, or was there even just because of the lack of people, you know, precedents or role models, did you ever face any, I don't know, even if it was unstated, just subtle pressure to, to play something else or because there just weren't all that many African-American pitchers, maybe it was hard harder for you to break through in some way? No pressure at all. I, uh, uh-huh. I went to all those pre-draft camps and I went as a, a center fielder and a, and a, and a, and a hitter. And they saw me do that. But once they saw me on the mound, they was like, no, no kid, you're going to pitch. You're going to mm-hmm. pitch. And I remember Mike Ratcliffe and uh, Terry Ryan and Larry Corgan came to see me in high school. And Mike Ratcliffe said the first thing he he said when he saw me was I had a magical arm. And mm-hmm. they said they never thought about me playing another position. Pitching is where they wanted me and, and where I was going to be. So, you know, I've never been pressured to play another position. You know, when I first started off, I always thought I was a better position player than pitcher. But, you know, I it was something about pitching that, that I gravitated towards. And I think it was being in control all the time. You know, nothing happen, happens until the pitcher releases the ball. You know, everything is predicated on the pitcher doing his job. And, you know, I enjoy that pressure and not saying that other guys don't enjoy that pressure, but that's, but that's what drove me and gave me the drive to want to be, you know, a pitcher. So looking at this Sabre demographic study and how African-American players tend to get moved to the outfield and there are very few African-American pitchers and catchers. And, you know, Ben and I were just talking before the podcast and we were thinking, you know, can you remember an African-American catcher since Charles Johnson, who's been retired for more than 10 years now? But it makes me think about where we talk about players getting the most out of their intelligence. And, you know, you talk about catchers as leaders, as game callers and pitchers, you know, how they have to think ahead of of batters. And I just keep coming back to that famous Al Campanis Nightline interview in 1987, where he said African-Americans didn't have the, the mental capacity to be managers or general managers. And I'd like to think that it's just a coincidence that white players and tend to get funneled into these positions. But I just wonder if that's naive to think that there's not some correlation, that there might not be some lingering bias, even if it's unstated in the baseball community. Yeah. If I could just piggyback on that for a second, when I worked briefly for a team, the the scouting director at the time was a, a person of color. And he told me, you know, when I left and started writing, he was like, you have to look into this black catchers thing because it, you know, he couldn't come up with a reason other than than some sort of bias, even if it wasn't conscious or intentional, but it sort of relates to the football question about black quarterbacks and how they've historically been underrepresented at that position. And it's the same kind of qualities maybe that are prized at catcher and quarterback. And so you wonder if there's still some sort of lingering prejudice there, even if people don't realize it. Well, um, I don't know. I can't completely say that there is, but, you know, mm-hmm. I can talk about I was at a camp called the Breaking Barry, Breaking uh, Dream Series camp in January with Charles Johnson, Lenny Webster, who was the other black catcher before Charles Johnson was, uh, myself, Darren Oliver, uh, Marvin Freeman. And we had 45 young black pitchers, age 14 to uh, 18. 
and we had 15 black catchers, the same age group. So there's a group of catchers, African-American catchers that are coming, you know, are in the amateur ranks and high school ranks that are, they're catching. I just don't see, you know, it's just coming up. My high school mm-hmm. catchers, nobody wanted to catch. Nobody wanted to sit back there and squire for nine innings and, you know, and call the game. Yeah. We just didn't want to do it. I called in high school. I called in high school. And when I was catching, when I was pitching, my younger brother was my catcher because nobody else wanted to do it. So I've seen that side of like, you know, guys just don't want to catch. I mean, sitting down, squatting the whole game, legs feeling like crap after the game, you know, don't have enough legs to hit or run, you know, so I could see that part of it. But if there's a case where a guy was a black, it was a black catcher in the minor leagues and a, and a team steered them to another position, that's completely different. I never saw that, but I'm sure mm-hmm. it's it's a possibility. But then you have the freaky thing as, you know, the Molina brothers. You know, you got one family with three <laughs> very good major league catchers. So, I mean, in one household, that's mm-hmm. like... It just blows my mind. That's true. And with only 30 starting catching jobs, that's a demographic <laughs> shift all, you know, just the Molinas themselves are, are better yeah. represented in most countries. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a weird thing, but I've never heard of a case where the, uh, the team steered an African-American catcher to another position. Has it been done? Who knows? So I wanted to ask, since we were talking about, you know, you were a multi-sport athlete in high school, your godson, Patrick Mahomes, was a, or is a notable NFL draft prospect this year, and he played baseball briefly at, at Texas Tech, and obviously, you know, his dad played in the big leagues too, but, you know, did you talk to him at all about when he was choosing baseball or football? Yeah, I was, I was one of the coaches on the Brazilian national team with uh, Barry Larkin and Steve Finley the last four years, and we would go down there for two weeks at the end of January every year to do a two week um, like spring training uh, type of camp with the top 14 to 18 year old guys in that, in that, um, in that area, Brazil, we have Peru, Argentina, uh, Costa Rica. So, and I work with some guys down there and there were scouts down there, but we always took Mike Larson, who used to be, used to run the major league scouting bureau. He works with us in Minnesota now. And when Patrick was trying to decide whether he wanted to, you know, continue to play baseball, his dad called me and asked me what I thought. And I was like, you know what? I'll call you tomorrow because I have Mike Larson here with me. He's been scouting for tons of years and give me his honest opinion. So Mike Larson actually told me in Brazil that, you know what? The kid's been playing baseball his whole life. That's in his DNA. He'll be fine if he missed a couple years of playing because that's all he's ever done. And it's not like he's taking the time off and going to med school or something. He's taking the time off to go play another sport and he's playing at a high level. So he'll still get drafted after his junior year. They said he'll still get drafted. So Mm. you tell him if he really needs to focus on football, focus on football because that's where he needs his time at right now. He's been to all those camps. He did everything he could possibly do to learn the game of baseball. He knows baseball. He knows what he needs to do to get ready for baseball. He had to devote that same amount of time to be a quarterback. So I talked to his dad about what Mike Larson had told me and we talked to Patrick about it. And, you know, we let him make his decision after that. And he decided, you know, he was going to focus on football full time. And that's what he did. And that's when it, it turned around for him on the football field. So what was that experience in Brazil like? I, you know, that's got to be completely unusual for, you know, any, any baseball play, You know, that's almost uncharted territory for baseball right now. Yeah, it is. It's a hotbed. They got some great athletes and all athletes aren't playing soccer. So, you know, they have some baseball players. 
that just need to be need coaching, good coaching, because baseball is not that popular in that country. So we're over there doing some camps and teaching them how to do things the right way. They actually have a in Sao Paulo. Uh, they actually have a huge Japanese influence. So a lot of their baseball, the little baseball that they do have, has a Japanese influence. But myself, Barry Larkin, and Steve Finley, we're over there with Major League Baseball, just you know, bringing in the the you know the American style of baseball and getting some of those guys that had the the best talent, getting those guys ready to to be able to come to the United States and and sign with a team and 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 learn how to play the way we play baseball over here. So over the course of your career, you know, I, I think of you mostly as a twin because that's where you spend most of your, your time. But you played for 11 different franchises, which I think would make you one of the leading experts in, you know, where are good places to, to play baseball professionally. So, you know, you talk about everybody wants to play for the Yankees or the Red Sox. But like, is there an underrated baseball city or, you know, a place to be as a, a professional athlete or an organization that having to do over again that, that you would want to sign up with? I have three teams and three, three small markets that are just diamonds in the rough. I mean, they're great baseball cities, but, and that would be Minnesota, college, Denver, and, and Milwaukee. But if I had to pick one of the three, I'll pick Milwaukee. Milwaukee is one of those cities, man. They love their sports teams. They are diehard fans. They're a great sports city. And it's just a, it's a small city. So it doesn't get the small market. doesn't get the, you know, all the fanfare that all those other places get, but it's a great place to be a professional athlete and, and, and play in that city. And I'm curious about Colorado. I, I know you had uh, two stints there and your second one came when you were 41 and 42. Was it difficult to adjust physically to the altitude there, especially in your second time around when you were close to the end of your career? Well, you know, I always try to stay in very good shape, very good shape. And if you're in good shape, the altitude you know, doesn't affect you as much, but you know, as far as pitching, I always told myself and my agent told me this the first time I signed in 2007, don't get intimidated about the out by the altitude. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, that's all you hear about. He's like, if you pitch the way you've learned to pitch and you've been taught to pitch your whole life, since you were a little bitty boy to now you'll be fine. And what he meant was if you pitch down in the zone, you're going to have success. I don't care where you pitch. If you pitch up in the zone, you're going to get hit. You're going to get, you're, gonna, you're not going to have any success. I don't care if you're pitching on the moon, you're not going to have success. Now in Colorado, you're going to give up a few more base hits just because of the spacious outfield. But if you mm-hmm. pitch down in the zone, your chance of having success goes up. Mm-hmm. And do you attribute your longevity purely to staying in shape or were there things about how you adjusted your approach that made it possible? Because really, you, you look at even just the last several seasons of your career and you were about as effective as ever. You were closing at, at age 41, right, with the Rockies. So mm-hmm. you really had a, a very long tail to your career. Well, I think the older I got, the harder I threw. Hmm. You know, and I just I had to make adjustments along the way to my mechanics because you know, it's just, you know, once you make an adjustment, the hitters make an adjustment, then you have to make an adjustment. And, and throughout your career, it's, it's a series of constant adjustments and who makes the adjustments faster. And, and if you can make those adjustments and still be successful, you know, I've changed my hand over the course of the years. I've changed where, you know, my release point, you know, I've changed where I stood on the mound. I've changed where I, um, I set my sights on where I wanted my certain pitches to, to break or go to. And it's a lot of things that, that goes into being, you know, a successful pitcher in the major leagues and making adjustments. And you have to make adjustments. 
you have to make adjustments. If you can't make adjustments, the league will make adjustments and they will beat you to death. So you have to make adjustments. And I, and I, my first four years in the big leagues, I started, I got 98 career starts. Mm -hmm. I didn't do too well. That's why I ended up in a bullpen, but the older I got and I started to learn myself and stop worrying about learning the hitters. That's when it started to change for me. My first few, my first four or five years in the big leagues, I was so fixated on trying to figure out the hitters, you know, their strength and their weaknesses that I didn't know my own strength and weaknesses. So once I figured out what I did best and made myself understand that just because this guy is a good fastball hitter doesn't mean I can't throw my best pitch fastball. So I always said my best against his best, whereas opposed when I was younger and I was starting and I see this guy's a great fastball hitter, well, I would throw him a, a, a terrible breaking ball because I didn't want him to hit my fastball. And just things like that, that, that thought process just kept me from being a, a, a legitimate starter in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I guess your career spanned almost all of the sort of post-Eckersley, La Russa era of kind of, you know, having one inning relievers or closers who were sort of tied to the ninth or save situations. And now more and more you're hearing about guys breaking out of that mold and maybe going multiple innings as you did in some of your earlier relief seasons once you transitioned from the starting rotation. So I'm curious about whether you have any thoughts on that, whether you this feel is a big that, thing for us, by the way, yeah, we, we, we talk about this a lot. Yeah. Whether, whether you think that a less restrictive or less predictable bullpen role is, is better or whether there were advantages to the way it was often done during your career. Well, I'm, I'm a I'm a guy that I like the way it was done. I like the the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guys, uh, the mm -hmm. closers. I like the the the, uh, the lefty specialists. I like that because it makes the game a little bit more interesting. I like the fact that it and it gives more jobs. If you got one guy going out there throwing six innings, another guy going <laughs> out there throwing three innings saves. I mean, geez. And <laughs> in this day and age, there's so much video that you know a guy seeing a, a guy two and maybe two times doing a doing a uh, doing a game. You know, I always thought I knew when I was at my best. I was at my best when I was out there throwing, you know, anywhere between I didn't have many three pitch innings, but I'm gonna say three three pitches to twenty one pitches in mm -hmm. an inning. If I got past the twenty one pitches in an inning, and if I got to twenty five, I was out there laboring. I was out there laboring, and the longer I was out there, the better potential for something bad to happen. And mm -hmm. so I knew myself, and I know, you know, is always, and I always told myself if you got the chance to face me one time. I'm betting on myself 100% of the time. Now, the second and third time in a game, you definitely have the advantage. But if, I'm, if it's going to be one time, I'm betting on myself. And, I, and that's what the game has, has come to. you got specialists doing every yeah. phase of the game. Yeah. All right. You can watch Latroy on Fox Sports North. You can hear him on TuneIn. And you can find him on Twitter at LatroyHawkins32. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Latroy. Thank you. Anytime. All right, so that is it for today. We will be back later this week. Always a pleasure, Michael. Always a pleasure for me, too. 